millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And for this episode, I am delighted to be joined by the Irish-born academic and former US ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, who was in her time in the White House at the cabinet table of the most powerful government in the world and one of the most powerful women in American foreign affairs. Barack Obama calls the Pulitzer winner a great friend. In her memoir, he said, The Education of an Idealist, grapples with the balance between idealism, pragmatism, advocacy and governancy. It's a must-read for anyone who cares about our role in a changing world. Well, she came in to talk to us about her Irish roots, about being the child of a mother who went all the way to the Supreme Court to gain custody of her children, and the challenge of getting her ideas across in a predominantly male environment. I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's a bit of everything, and she is never less than fascinating. Samantha, this book is so expertly interwoven with foreign policy, professional stuff, deeply, deeply exposing you as a person, that I wonder why you did it. Um, I think that so often when you're lucky enough to arrive professionally in some place that you might have long ago never imagined you could land, that people who see you in that role just assume it was some inevitable streak of lightning that from birth you came out and it was, this person's going to be U.S. ambassador to the United Nations one day. And and at that point, when you are lucky enough to find yourself in a privileged position, you, I think for many people, are no longer relatable. And therefore, any lessons in my education that I might have sought to impart are lessons that many people would think, well, that's you. That's not me. And So I think to open up the challenges along the way and particularly the vulnerability one feels at different times where one is making oneself vulnerable, um, I think that then makes the larger story a more relatable story. At least that was the aspiration. I doubt it's ever been done before in such a way. I mean, this book, because I was watching a speaking this week at, at, at one event and a lot of foreign policy nerds were there. But there were also ordinary women there and everybody was wrapped, which is, I think, what makes this book pretty unique. But Samantha, just, just going back to, to the, the point of the book, which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's woven so deftly, the personal with the political and the personal, um, and how an idealist uh, who wrote a book, wrote the book about genocide and about official inertia, finally found herself in the hot seat with those decisions to make, coming up against that those same problems, but having to decide them for yourself. What was that like? And well, how did it turn out? <laughs> um, mixed, I suppose, is how it turned out, as I, as I write in the book. I mean, I think that, weirdly, the, the act of being an advocate inside is not that different from being an advocate outside. You know, if you're an effective or seek to be an effective advocate outside on any issue, um, you got to have a sense of what the constraints are that would be impeding action by officialdom. You have to have your facts right. You have to be rigorous. You have to try to bridge the distance between, let's say, what you've seen. So when I was a, an activist on Darfur, And I went to Darfur and discovered with my friend John a a mass grave. You know, my job is not just to tell the story of the mass grave, but it's it's when I go back to Washington to try to convince from the outside someone who's in a position of influence that there's something they can do to prevent more mass graves, right? So you you have to kind of create a pathway. Um, And so then when you're in the room, it's it's similar. It's that that same set of arguments. 
Um, the difference, the hardest part was when you lose in the room, there's no place else to go. You know, you're, you're America and it's, it's that room or no room. It's unlikely that some other country is going to step up at the UN and say, okay, I'm going to mobilize a coalition to deal with Syria chemical weapons use, or I'm going to go and do this. And so it would, the, 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 the art of, or science at times, sometimes it can feel like science of, advocacy of of policy making you know in a way the president is the only one who's the true decider right the rest of us are kind of almost inside like mini ngos competing with one another to get his ear and so it doesn't look that that dissimilar now the adjustment of like coming into the white house and being pregnant and learning to find the oval office when i had no idea where the oval office was and getting lost on the way to the oval office and the way that people speak in government institutions, including the very gendered way they speak, you know. Give like, us an example of that gendered uh, way they really, speak. Really? Yeah, do. You're going to force me? Yes, please. Um, I think in this negotiation with the Iranians, we're going to need to show some leg. Um, well, when we go in to to talk to the Russians, we should go in open kimono. What? what? <laughs> open kimono? Really? Um, meaning disclosure, transparency, I guess. I don't even, I'm not sure I want to spend too much time visualizing what is meant. But um, but so there's a lingo, right? There's, I mean, actually figuring out how to make policy or convene people even to, to come up with options is not something that you get a manual or any instruction to know how to do. And, and when I went to the White House for the first time, first time I'd ever set foot in the West Wing was as an official. I'd never even been there as a as a reporter. And tell tell us how you found the floor plan. You, you needed to get to the Oval Office. How did you find the f- floor plan? Oh, we're going to go right for my my weak my weak moments. Uh, so, first of all, when I when I arrive, my husband and I, I was very lucky. Kat, my husband Castle, had met on the Obama campaign, and I were working in the White House together. Him in charge of regulation, me as the president's human rights and UN advisor, and. Um, Somehow, I don't know, he took more naturally to it. I think just just the lingo and the and the sort of how to get things done dimension. I managed to faint twice in my first week uh, working at the White House um, for different reasons, but basically just because you were pregnant. I was pregnant, but also not taking. I mean, you could be pregnant and not faint. I think um, if you and take care of yourself. And Samantha, if I can just go off on a little tangent yeah. there, you actually hadn't talked about your pregnancy at this point, had you? I think uh, it was during the transition that I was particularly coy and wearing large Aaron woolen sweaters that had not been taken out of my closet since I was <laughs> a teenager, but suddenly seemed to be very well suited to to hiding my bump. So that was during transition at the time when I was figuring out, like, what job was I going to have? Was I going to have any job? And, I, and I'm and i a little ashamed that I didn't just say, whatever, you know, leave it on them to if they're going to be uh, discriminated against me, dare them. But instead, I just played it safe. And again, this wasn't Obama who, who wouldn't have had any uh, issue with somebody who was pregnant. And, and But in my mind, I thought, will the national security advisor – want to hire a UN advisor, human rights advisor, who's going to leave in several months because she's going to go on maternity leave. So it was more, I wasn't thinking that they were anti-pregnancy, but more that they were pro-full-time full, staffing. <laughs> and so I did hide it. I did get the job. And at that point, then I did wear scarves and I, I didn't advertise it in any way. But at a certain point, it becomes um, a little obvious. Obama, at one point, before I'd had time to pull him aside to tell him during the transition, in a way that I'm, I didn't write about in the book, uh, and probably shouldn't talk about here. But anyway, I've already started. So, and he's like, "Have you gained weight?" <laughs> so I was like, "Thanks, boss." Uh, yes, but for not the reason, uh, for not the reason you think. Um, but uh, you know, just right. I guess a sign of friendship and trust. Uh, so that was the way it ended up coming out there with him. But, but so because I had fainted. And because um, I thought it important not to faint again, especially given that that's not a good thing for a pregnancy. It was my first time having a child, so I was learning all this as I went. I carried around a a water bottle, you know, of the kind you buy in the shop with the sort of, in my case, it was Poland Springs was the brand. It had the green sticker. And I carried it not for one week, but for two weeks, maybe three, just the same water bottle. I would fill it up and I wasn't going to faint and I was going to be on my toes, and I was waiting for the opportunity to brief 
President Obama in an official setting because for as close as we had been when he was in the Senate and on the campaign, as soon as he became president, all these walls and layers went yes. up and I was kind of on the outside with my face pressed over the glass, kind of, let me... I without, even his e- without even his email address. Without his email initially until yes. until much later. And, um, and which and you, 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 you very sweetly confessed to having a sore ego over. Definitely bruised <laughs> and, I mean, both for practical reasons, wait, like how am I going to have an impact and, you know, what chance do I have to withstand all of the gravity in American foreign policy that cuts in favor of, um, let's say, if not neglecting human rights, not prioritizing human rights. There's a lot of gravity toward your hardcore immediate security issues and a lot of gravity toward believing that those don't intersect with human rights, which they do. But nonetheless, that the gravity doesn't doesn't embrace my, my worldview so much in the, in the bureaucracy and the system. And so I needed access to be able to make my case. And for – I mean the president wanted me around for that reason, but the people – you know, just beneath him, the chief of staff and people like that, you know, they're the ones deciding who is uh, gaining access to various meetings. And so, yeah, it was it was both how am I going to be effective and how <laughs> me, you know, let me in. Uh, so it was both human and and again, sort of functional. But finally, I get the call to come and to brief him in a pre-meeting before he sat down with the U.N. secretary general. And I'm very pleased because I'm, I'm ready and I'm prepared and I've got every argument crisply articulated and rehearsed and every – I anticipate all of the counterarguments and I'm rearing to go. And I head over to the West Wing where I've been many times in the Situation Room, um, but I had not been to the Oval. And Here's my chance and he's going to remember what he's missing and I get over there and I realize I have no idea where the Oval Office is. And I say that the West Wing is really small. It's way smaller than it looks like like on the show, the West Wing. And so it shouldn't have been that hard. And if I, again, had had more confidence at the time, I would have just asked somebody, like everybody else presumably knew where it was. So instead I, of not wanting to look like I didn't know what I was doing, I went back to my office, which is just across a tiny little lane at the old executive office building where all the NSC staff worked, and I Googled – Oval Office, West Wing, map, and thankfully on the Washington Post website arose a map. I printed it out. As I walked over, I realized it was not drawn to scale, that it had much more to do with power dynamics in Washington and like whether David Axelrod was sitting closer to the Oval than Valerie Jarrett. And like it was one of those power maps rather than a a how to get to the Oval Office map. And so I get in there and I end up getting all turned around. I end up on the third floor. The pre-brief is on the, the oval, I should say, is on the second floor, which is where the pre-brief was. So by the time I arrive, I'm sweating and I'm at this time, I guess I'm five months pregnant at that time. And I'm carrying my water bottle and I come in. And of course, the briefing has been underway for about 10 minutes. Somebody else had briefed in my stead who was not prepared because I hadn't, had thought that I was going to do the briefing. And Obama says, nice of you to join us, Sam. Uh, in the middle, of, but friendly, like super friendly, because this is my first time I've been there. He hadn't seen me in a while, and so I kind of skulk over to the couch and kind of wedge myself between two of my colleagues, and I put my water bottle, this kind of grimy thing that I've been carrying around, on this 18th century mahogany table. Uh, you know that had been the table itself had been witness to these amazing historical events. There I am in the Oval, and this butler reaches over my shoulder and using two picture, two uh, fingers sort of picks up the water bottle and very slowly kind of takes it out of the sight, out of the range of view of the, the president of the United States, the idea that he'd be looking at this grimy thing on his mahogany table. And I'm just there, I'm like, oh God, is this, could this go worse? Is there any way that this will go worse? But um, interestingly, and this gets maybe to, to women and or at least something that, that women may experience more than men, but, you know, so I, d- I hadn't had the courage of my convictions just to say, where's the Oval? And get there on time and do my briefing, which would have been a m- far more effective way to do things. I didn't want to show vulnerability. I wanted to look like I knew what I was doing. Instead, I had the opposite effect. But y- years later, as I got to know, or over the coming years, I should say, as I got to know other women at the White House... I met like three of them who had done exactly the same thing, who had Googled and who and who who were, you know, sort of lamenting this map and the inadequacy of this map. And I just thought, oh my gosh, we were all like everybody else to me looked like they 
had it all together. They were wearing their Washington suits and their strutting around and and seemed to know exactly what they were doing. But one of the sayings I come back to again and again in the book is never compare your insides to somebody else's outsides. So it turns out, though, inside, they were, you know, having the same doubts, printing out the same kind of pathetic map, uh, getting lost, and living the the chaos and the and the sort of swirl that is life. Which, which is one of the things that makes the books so relatable because there are several incidents like that that will that you've been in the middle of a dense piece about foreign policy and I was going to skim some of it to be honest with you. But I found myself genuinely drawn back. I'd see a reference or a quote or a name or something and I read all the stuff about foreign policy as well as all those cringy moments. A spoonful of sugar, right? A spoonful of sugar is what it was, except, you know, and very decent of you to put it in the book in order to keep the likes of me (laughs) going. But, Samantha, can we put that incident in context? Because when you started in that office, you did feel like a woman who was actually almost being picked on. Yes, I didn't know exactly why I felt that way. Um, I didn't know if I was being extra self-conscious because I had made this terrible mistake on the Obama campaign in the primary season where I had said derogatory things about Hillary Clinton, had to resign the campaign. So I just kind of clawed my way back uh, for the general election and then had managed to get this wonderful job. Um, So I thought maybe are my ideas kind of landing suboptimally <laughs> in these broader discussions because I don't yet have the trust and the confidence of my peers because I had screwed up? Or was it because I was the human rights advisor and that's famously the skunk at every White House lawn party is the person, you know, going, bringing that angle to every discussion, you know, wanting to cut off military assistance to some government that's abusing its people? Was it because I was pregnant and I'd soon be leaving and it wasn't so much that they were dismissing but just thought she'll be gone soon? Um, or was it because I was female? And and I don't – I still couldn't tell you um, what percentage was this versus that. I mean, it, you know, there was a, a range well, of – Well, let's just sort yeah. of put it into words. An office the size of a broom cupboard. Smaller salary, which you actually oh, did right, have right. the guts to that. challenge them on. Yeah. Tell us about how you got them to pay you the, 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 the correct rate. Yeah, well, I it was random. I had been told what my salary would be. It, you know, was, it was a big pay cut from the private university where I'd been teaching, but it was public service. I, was, I didn't think anything about it. Um, but as is so often the case, uh, you know, one's one's pride uh, can sometimes have less to do with an objective number than it than it does with a kind of relative circumstance. And so what happened was just in the by the by, one of my colleagues who had the same rank and title as I did, who was a Middle East advisor, informed me of his salary. And it was, uh, I think it was $5,000, you know, more than mine. And so I, I immediately just thought, somebody, like, what's up with that? And, you know, I had a ton of experience, certainly as much as he did, but maybe even more. And, and I just thought, that's weird. And so I called the NSC chief of staff. And instead of doing, again, what, what in the movies you would do, which is just say, how could you? And this is discriminatory on its face. And, you know, I said, um, what is it that I would need to do in order to earn the higher tier of salary, sir? Pretty much. Um, and and that's the hard thing about bureaucracy, well, any office politics really, is that when you're in a hierarchy, and I'd never been in one before, but, you know, fundamentally the same leverage that they had that caused them to be in a, whoever it is, but to be in a position to do something that you deem unjust is leverage they retain as you then seek to, you know, kick, kick up a fuss about it. Anyway, I think he was embarrassed that he'd been sort of found out. I mean, normally that would have just happened and nobody would have ever known. Um, and then, yeah, I got I got an office that was just um, it was again had, had if I didn't see my peers' offices, I'd have been fine with my office. I wasn't going into the White House to have a big office. That wasn't what the deal was. I was going in to to try to again put some of the things that I'd learned over the years to use in some fashion. And but then when you see others, then it's like, hey. So eventually, I got a bigger office again by by being um, by being a, a complaining person. But that's 
doesn't feel great, right, to be the person who's focused on your office when we're trying to get our troops out of Iraq or we're trying to figure out what to do about atrocities in in Sudan. And, um, and so I think that the turning point for me as a woman um, in the workplace, honestly, because I, I, this was the first time I'd really experienced the full-time job in an office place that was very dominated by men. I'd been a, a war correspondent uh, as a freelancer, but we all kind of did our own thing. And, and actually the, the pack of journalists that I traveled with and worked with and relied upon were all pretty much women with a couple of men thrown in. But I never had a sense of it being really a disadvantage when I'd been in Bosnia as a journalist or writing then long magazine articles. I didn't feel it as a disadvantage as an activist where many people in NGOs wrote, you know, many NGOs are run by women. And then in the White House, Barack Obama's White House, you know, the, the most feminist president we've ever had, son of the most extraordinary woman, mother, husband of Michelle Obama, father of these two uh, at that time girls, but now young women who are going to do amazing things in their own right. I mean, I had the most auspicious circumstance in which to to head into an office. But in fairness, while he appointed more female cabinet secretaries than any president in history, UN ambassador, Homeland Security secretary, Secretary of State, and Hillary Clinton, the actual core staff was tw- there were 26 core staff positions, senior directors for various issues, and only six of those were women. And so the turning point was when one of those women, who I wasn't even really all that friendly with, said, I'm going to bring all the women together and we're going to talk about how things are going. And, you know, she says, we're going to have a glass of wine. We're going to do it at five o'clock. And that's just the way it is. And so I kind of went along for the ride, showed up, didn't, again, really self-identify in gender terms at the at the, at the threshold sort of before I entered her office. And remember, our offices at the White House in National Security are safes. They're like large safes where you twirl a lock to get in. It's sort of surreal. You, you're drinking a glass of wine in a safe in the national security world. The whole thing was weird. But as With I, windows. Uh, with windows, but where the blinds are permanently drawn because – there's the risk of spying from the outside. So it's a kind of, you know, it's not sort of sunny California and kicking back on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. But, but once I started hearing from my other female colleagues about what they were going through on everything from how to find the Oval, but also to how they felt that they were being treated, again, by, by people who had authority over them, how they feel their, felt that their arguments – were and were not landing in group discussions. You know, the the classic, I remember at the very first meeting, somebody describing, I mean, it's so, it's so familiar that it's not even almost worth mentioning, but her making an argument, um, something about European security policy and nobody else in the room picking up on the, the, the line of argument. And then her colleague, uh, Phil, making the identical argument and then everybody like well as you know i think we should pick up on phil's point when phil, and she's there just like what yeah we what? heard that one <laughs> what and so again it's so familiar it's almost banal but i because i'd worked on my own and because i i hadn't i you know i compared in a way whatever my situation was to that of my mother all these years before where even in order to go to america she had to stand in a courtroom and have an Irish judge tell her, what right has this woman to be so educated? I mean, I always felt I had it easy. But then I got there. I was like, well, maybe it, maybe it isn't because I'm doing human right. Maybe it isn't because I'm pregnant. Maybe, it, maybe it's actually there is a gender dynamic and who knows. And but, it, but the solidarity almost like defanged that, that feeling in a, in a way that was really useful. Like once you knew that there were others who felt that way, then it was like, wait, it's them, it's not you, kind of. And it's important to describe this so that other people do. I mean, that story about, that story you just told us, is so familiar about, about a woman making a statement and nobody hearing it until the male down the, the line repeats it. That is almost a cliche at this it stage. Is, yeah. But other stories coming from your level are not. And one of the stories that I'd like you to tell, Samantha, is your, in your previous existence uh, in Senator Obama's office where you saw messages being exchanged. Oh, that, yeah. That uh, no where you were in a genuinely hostile atmosphere by the sound of things. Well... In an unpaid job, let yeah, me also Yeah, so, so I'd come in as a, as a fellow... Um, you know, sort of getting a, a, a stipend, but I was not paid by Senator Obama. He had just entered the Senate 
Um, I w- had been a professor at Harvard. I'd left my job, gone on leave, so as to work with him. And I came in and, you know, I mean, sometimes in fairness, you only see yourself in terms of your own intentions and your own, through the prism of your own innocence. And then, you know, I, I, I tried to put myself in the shoes of the people in the office and how they would feel with me arriving. But there was a, a you know, a full-time foreign policy advisor to Senator Obama's a very small staff. So it wasn't even like the White House where there were so many people. And this individual, his name is Mark, um, was had grown accustomed to being Obama's only foreign policy advisor and having the ear of the senator and in fairness, right, suddenly Obama's calling me at night and then repeating back tomorrow, Sam said, and of course Obama's a bit oblivious, right, that this would cause, there'd be nothing to do more to undermine me than for him to be quoting me uh, in this new uh, office dynamic that I was I was getting introduced to in a hurry. But um, but just in general, I was pitching things and, hey, we could do this. And what about a speech on responsible withdrawal from Iraq and how that would – nah, somebody's already done that. And well, what if we do this on Darfur? Uh, won't work. Never get it through the con- – I mean it was just like – I just – and, and you know, I'm, I wanted to be a good girl. I wanted to be uh, – you know, to play it straight within the system. And, there, and then I, of course, had his email and his phone number and could have called him and – but again, the more you do that, then the more you blow things up in, in the day-to-day. And so I tried to stay within the the confines of the hierarchy of the office, even as I was getting more and more frustrated um, with time. But I di- what I didn't know, again, was whether it was personal or, or whether maybe I, I well, again, didn't have vast experience um, in, in the legislative domain. So I was learning as I went. Maybe my proposals weren't good. You know, who knows? But I was one day I was printing something out for the senator and I'm sitting at my computer and my computer freezes. So I just innocently go into the office of my of my colleague and sit at his computer to just Google the th- thing and print out the article. It was, you know, totally innocent, although I felt later guilty for for having done it. And as I'm sitting at his computer, he's out for lunch. Um up on the, you know, the, there are these email programs where the email comes up as like a bubble and then melts away. And then, and I see in the corner, like that the this bubble that's coming up and then melting away has my name in it. And then there's another bubble, and it and basically bubble after bubble, and they're all melting away. So I do, I, I kind of it takes me a second to get my bearings to even. I'm not even to this day sh- exactly sure what it was all about, but apparently, I was a terrible prima donna, all about myself, you know, in the office, basically for my own glory, in my cubicle, allegedly for my for my own glory. And but what I didn't, what I liked least of all was that it was clear that it was some kind of ongoing back and forth, you know. And and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was like I was picking up a a conversation, not only even not only midstream, but you know, in the in the in the fiftieth exchange of this nature, where pretty much all my actions. Anyway, it's so petty and it's so small. And believe me, this is an example of something I debated. Is it so? Is it more demeaning of me to relay something like this? Given how petty it is, uh, then then you know, or does it look like you know, I'm somehow there's some vindictiveness in me and putting this in a, in a book? I mean, in other words, like I got to go on to be UN ambassador. I'm I'm very blessed and privileged in my life. The idea that somebody's saying something mean about me in email, like who the cares? That I took great exception to though yeah. was where in one of these bubbles, they were they were alleging that you were exploiting Darfur for yes, your own for my own personal glory. advantage. Yes. Exactly, because this yes. was at a time where we were we were uh, pushing Darfur onto the policy agenda. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it it happened. It the reason it go, I decided to put it in the book um, is it happens, right? It mm. it this no matter how much you think you share the values sometimes of people you work with, um, you know, your values may be the same. We were all progressives working for this amazing senator. We were all, um, you know, I mean, pretty much everyone there could have had different kinds of jobs, earning money, doing this or that. And instead we were in this like little insurgent shop, you know, trying to support this uh, first term senator. Uh, this was before he was running for, for president. Um, and yet, just because you're on have the same mission and have the same goals for the country, roughly speaking, doesn't mean that these other kind of personal dynamics don't intrude and and can really impede. And again, the reason it's in there is you don't have to work in a Senate office 
to have experienced that that sense of of being, you know, kind of violated or the sense of not of being on the same team on paper, but kind of not being on the same team in the deepest sense. And and it, it it's very jarring. And and so I, I again back to your point at the at the beginning, I, I put it in there not to I didn't name the person uh, even whose computer I was on or who the email was coming from. But I and just said it was to sort of senior people in the office, uh, which it was, uh, because my goal is not to settle scores, but it is to say this is what it's like, and especially to young people, right, who are going for it. like you're not alone. If if you overhear this or that, or somebody accidentally sends you something, there's or you hear that somebody said something about you, and the, that's life, that's office politics, and to the degree that you can console yourself into knowing that that just reflects a smallness on the part of other people, and not let it. Uh, you know, in any way impede on whatever your objectives are, you know, all to the better. And and so just kind of forewarned is forearmed a little bit. Now, I don't know with, with your 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 uh, your Wednesday group that um, there was this talk about holding back in policy debates, which you were doing apparently out of humility, as you said, but watched others who knew less sound <laughs> off I think and knew tipping less. the direction yeah. of a policy. Could, yeah. Yeah. Um, were you very bad at that, or was that just a very brief phase until you realized it was, it was, I should start sounding less humble here? Yeah, well, it wasn't. I mean, I don't want to. Again, you know, it's like, what's your biggest weakness? <laughs> I'm too humble, too yeah. kind, and I work too hard. You know, perfectionism. Um, yes. yes, exactly. So I, I don't want to overstate. Uh, I, I, you know, I suspect there are people who were with me in meetings, even in the early weeks, who thought I, I was, uh, you know, uh, even, even too confident on behalf of the, the things that I was putting forward. But I think it's more, you know, that they're in my mind and I think in the mind of many women sort of not only do we look before we leap, but we deliberate and we sometimes um, can deliberate too much and think to ourselves, oh, well, maybe this point has been made already. Or, you know, I'm new, for example, one of the issues that crossed our desk was the the in the early days was the killings in Sri Lanka and the tail end of the the war against the Tamil Tigers. And I had not, for all of my alleged expertise in mass atrocity prevention, I just was not a Sri Lanka expert. And that was an example where I just really wanted to take time out, dig deep, you know, really understand the history, how the war had gone up to that point. I mean, it didn't stop me from wanting to condemn the, the the government that was carrying out these abuses, but to figure out exactly what our levers were over the Sri Lankan government. And then I'm seeing people who, you know, just instinctively they believe that the United States should maintain military relationships with other governments. That's just their baseline view and nothing that was happening on the ground. They weren't even all that, in some cases, not even all that curious about what was happening because it just would always be the case that continuing to maintain that relationship their theory of the case was that that would always be good for your leverage and that therefore, even if you wanted to use your leverage to prevent human rights abuses, that you should maintain the military assistance. And so, like, wait, don't you want to know kind of how that military assistance is being used in this in, or the, the training and whether the people that have been trained in U.S. programs are involved in committing these atrocities? And, and so that was a moment where, just, uh, you know, here I am wanting to to bring more rigor to my interventions, um, and and the, the the policy making process is going to pass me by. So it was quick, but I thought again it was important in in reflecting on those times. No matter how protracted that period of self doubt, or you know, again at its best, maybe humility um, is accelerating the process by which you come up to speed. And accelerating the process by which you're willing to kind of make yourself vulnerable by putting your arguments out there um, sooner. Because you, you – and I'll tell you one, one thing that's been very interesting. Just even since this book, The Education of Idealist, has come out, I've, I've been traveling around a fair amount in the States and I've seen a lot of my former colleagues in the Obama administration. Um, and this is true of men as well as women, but the majority of people I've talked to about this has been women. Um but, you know, I just started asking the question, like, what's your greatest regret of our time together? Um, and there's lots to say, and it'd be, I, I want to think more about it, uh, you know, even even longer term because it's, it's just such an important question because if we do have the chance to govern again, we don't want to make mistakes and, and have regrets, at least in, of, the, of, the, of the same kind. But pretty much every person that I've had this conversation with, their greatest regret involves something they didn't say where they had the thought, it was all articulated in their thought bubble, 
you know, if you if it was a cartoon, you'd you'd, and yet they held back out of deference, out of a sense that maybe they, you know, weren't as well informed as other people who were holding forth, um, you know, maybe because they felt the meeting was going on too long and and they were sort of respectful of other people's time. I mean, again, for for kind of nice reasons of decency, humility, civility, but nonetheless, they now carry with them, you know, not a regret of, oh, I went on too long in that meeting and, you know, I really, I really, or I repeated something. I mean, you'd never regret that, right? That's gone. You've, you've just put it out there and you, and then you let the group dynamic take hold. But but it's these sort of omissions. Um, and, you know, I, I give an example of that in my own context when, when President Obama decided to go to Congress after he had decided to use military force in the wake of Bashar al-Assad's gas attack, chemical weapons attack in Syria in August 2013. Obama had said he was going to use military force. He then decided to reroute through Congress to get an authorization to use military force so that he'd be able to see through whatever he or the United States started. Fair enough. But I'm in that meeting and I'm very new to my job. I'm about a month into my job, maybe just a little bit less. My job as UN ambassador. So this is my this is my first time being in the cabinet at the table. And I have a ton of expertise to bring to bear about the UN dynamics, about chemical weapons, about the Russian position, about where the British and the French are and our coalition, about even questions of international law and whether we have the legal authority um, under the Chemical Weapons Convention to do anything or whether the fact that the Security Council will not approve what we're doing, you know, renders that argument, you know, kind of closed case. So I've got all kinds of things that I can bring to the table. But the debate sort of that we end up having is can we get the votes in Congress? And what, I mean, really, what is my comparative advantage in making a prediction about how the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives are likely to vote on a military authorization. I didn't feel like I had particular expertise, particularly when I juxtaposed my background with that of Chuck Hagel, who'd served as a senator from Nebraska, John Kerry, who'd been decades in the Senate serving the state of Massachusetts, Joe Biden, the Senate. I mean, together, there were like seven, eight decades of legislative experience. And they all, they, you know, they, they went back and forth, but ultimately, you know, told the president that they thought he would be able to secure this authorization, and every fiber in my being was crying out and saying, and I had just come through Senate confirmation, so I had just been up in the Senate, I just sensed like it's not on the level. There, you know, The idea that this is in our national security interest to do what Obama wants isn't going to be enough. It's, you know, there's ideology at work here, there's politics, there's polarization, and yet on this narrow issue of legislative feasibility, the presumptuousness of me being like, oh, no, I'm sorry, this you with your seven, eight decades of legislative experience. I've just gone through Senate confirmation. I'm going to tell you, uh, you know, that this isn't going to work. But as it happens, Samantha, you were right. My instinct was right, but yes. I didn't. What I but said instead, I said some. I said my ham-handed way around it was to say, if we don't get the authorization, you know, in other words, let's deal with that contingency. If we don't get the authorization from Congress, I know others think that we will. I get that. Meet everybody where they are. But if we don't get it, will chemical weapons for Assad become like a conventional weapon of war? Will this just be? And so Obama seized on that and he said, that's a good question. You know, we got to think about that risk. But then, and this is just so true of the nature of group dynamics, because everybody knew that Obama had made up his mind already to go to Congress, within no time, instead of engaging that question of what will the aftermath be like if we fail... Um, instead, everybody came back to, oh, but we'll get the votes. And then we didn't get the votes. Now, we're lucky. We were able to improvise, and I was tasked with, you know, helping negotiate the Security Council resolution to destroy Assad's chemical weapons program, which was at least some form of accountability for what he had done, though he kept a store of chemical weapons for use later, but never at the scale uh, that he used again. But we destroyed 1,300 tons of chemical weapons. It was a really important thing to do. But that was... That took some luck. Um, it wasn't the product of, again, careful forethought of the and time. And I have that I watched wish we had. numerous interviews with you in the past little while, and every time Syria is the centre of the interviews. Um, and each time I know people want you to say, Obama let me down. Well, they're very focused on Obama and me, and I guess, I don't know, I mean, I think the, the, the right framework is U.S. Security, 
you know, how did it, how did Syria pan out, all things considered for that? I think not good because of ISIS's rise and the fact that we ended up having to send troops back to the region from which we had departed in order to fight ISIS. Although, of course, in Syria, we relied very much on the Kurds, who uh, President Trump has just betrayed and abandoned. Um, but, and, you know, and, and what are the consequences of our decision making for, for Syria? Hundreds of thousands of people who died, you know, half the population displaced, including a very large number of Syrians who um, came into Germany and beyond, you know, fled across Europe, which played some role in the Brexit vote, I assume, and some role also in making immigration and migration more of an issue in the U.S. Clinton-Trump contest in 2016. So I guess, you know, when you're sitting in these meetings, and it'd be one thing, I think, if Obama changed, you know, if the man that I went to work for in the in the Senate and on the campaign became a different person. No, he's the same person taking into account, uh, again, a, a really complex situation. Um, and but So when I would argue that these consequences, you know, not all of which I, I, I certainly wouldn't have predicted like Brexit and, and Trump and any of that, but, but, but the fact that the conflict was spilling over in these ways, the fact of terrorists, the fact of the large-scale loss of life certainly was predictable. Um, and you do the what ifs in the book, which is which is actually I, I think is, is is really excellent for anybody who doesn't quite get it. You do the what if if the scenario had been different. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Now, what I want to do is go back to what made you this person who came from a little nine-year-old flying out of Ireland, actually fleeing as well as flying out of Ireland and landing in the cabinet of the... With a few steps along the way. (laughs) Extraordinary. Samantha, just tell us a little bit about your your, your, your background, Uh, you know, your your, your childhood in Ireland. So my mother's from Cork, Vera Delaney. My father from Athlone, Jim Power. Um, They met in London... Uh, in the late 1960s, where my mother was uh, over there briefly, uh, basically starting medical school. She would then come back to UCD and and finish here in Dublin. Um, My father was a wonderful piano player. He was a dentist practicing in London. And she walked into a pub and saw him playing the piano and leading a sing-along. And um, she, who had been pursued uh, by men um, and never could be bothered, as she would put it, um, kind of was, I think, stopped in her tracks and and they fell in love. And I was actually born in London in 1970 uh, and they came back to Ireland soon thereafter to Dublin. Um, my father, when she met him, was, a, was again, a pub goer and a drinker. But uh, as she got deeper and deeper into her medical career, he got deeper and deeper into the, into the drink. Um, I write in the book... Um, very fondly in some ways about my time as my father's sidekick in the pub in Hardigan's. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, on the stairs. On the stairs or down next to the slot machine holding my little mystery novel up next to the slot machine light uh, in order to get a little extra reading light in that kind of dank downstairs that some of you know. Um, and, you know, not ideal, I guess I would say as a parent now to have a child spend their weekends and and some of their days after school in that environment. On the other hand, I I always knew where I could find my dad. He was always, it wasn't like I bounded up and got swatted away. You know, it's like, what do you need? Okay, you've done with one book. I'll go to the car and get your next book. Um, And, you know, I felt the the sort of power of his gaze and his attention and his love. Were you always this non-judgmental about your father? Because it's it's on the one hand the story is genuinely shocking of you sitting upstairs <laughs> in Hartigans and the man really even lining even, even up here? the empty glasses. Yeah, I think it, yeah. it is. It really? is shocking. I mean, every I think most Irish people, Irish kids have experienced of being left outside in the car and being fed lemonade and crisps uh, while the father was getting hammered inside. <laughs> but it seems to me that this was happening at an, with an inordinate frequency in your case. I think so, but mm. but it you know again it wasn't. My like, I wouldn't have thought of him as getting hammered. He was, I suppose, getting hammered objectively. He in could so carry far it. As he could carry it, but he was not sloppy. So I didn't have a sense of him 
you know, again, it's all you, – you normalize what your parents are doing, right? It's, it's what we do. Therefore, it's what we do. There's no – I didn't have an alternative fact pattern, you know, of how yeah. life was. And my mother was off, um, you know, playing very competitive squash, um, having been a great athlete also in her younger years for Munster and then for Ireland and pursuing this passion of hers to care for patients and – so I guess on one level, my way is to sort of accommodate the foibles of the people you love most. I mean, in a way, to judge, as certainly as a child, it would be very rare. I foibles think, that a is child... a great word there because <laughs> the book does describe with, 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 with sometimes alarming detail the rows and the crockery right. smashing and eventually the custody fight where the judge said, what right has this woman to be so educated, which is... I think the first line of the book, um, and then you're you're having to choose between them almost as a nine year old. Yeah, you had to say I'm going this way or that way right. with them both standing there. Right, Not, and then coming up with these thing called lungers years later. Which lungers, lungers, since lungers. I was pronouncing word, in my since, head. Since it's a yes. word that's been invented. Uh, we can we can disagree on pronunciation since yeah. it doesn't actually exist as a word. But yeah, later in life, I... Longers after lungs, yes. Particularly yes. in relationships, I would find my breathing <laughs> severely constricted and, and you know, kind of yawning and trying to get a breath in. And, and I guess some people say they were like panic attacks, but it that seems to me almost more palpitating, whereas for me it was just I just couldn't get enough air in. And again, it was often when I was getting close to somebody. My college boyfriend uh, was the one who invented this term for what it was I was experiencing. And I began belatedly, too late really, but not too late, luckily, in the nick of time, I suppose, but to to delve into, you know, why when I was getting close to people did I start to feel myself claustrophobic? You know, was it because it was the wrong person, wrong man for me, or as I learned, was I so terrified that if I loved somebody fully again, that the same thing would happen, you know, that you'd be forced into these terrible choices or that they would die suddenly. And this almost disabled you, this breathing, breathing difficulty. It it did at different times. Um, And then my surefire way to disable it uh, was to like go to a war zone <laughs> where there was something more stressful that would take my mind or my heart or whatever my insides away, distract, divert them from, you know, whatever the deeper issues were that were holding me back. But but I did over time and I started to have, you know, really bad back pain, which of course <laughs> so deluded was I about my own emotional health that I was absolutely convinced that there was like some misalignment in my spine because that was the only way I could explain how in my 20s I was lying flat on my back like my, you know, like you you see, you know, people who've been working construction, you know, in their 70s are doing, I mean, suddenly I'm, and and I'm just convinced I'm going, I mean, first I get the ergonomic keyboard and the stand-up desk and then it's acupuncture and chiro- chiropractors and then it's x-rays and MRIs, and, and I'm determined <laughs> for there to be some physical cause. And the only time my breathing issues, my back pain, all of that lifted was when I went back to Hardigan's and when I, I mean, it sounds like, you know, again, psychology 101, but went back to some of what the sense of responsibility I think I carried for not having either been, I, I think I, I always knew I could never have patched up my parents' marriage, but... I think leaving to go to America and having just, the just, impression... Just let's reel back there a bit, Samantha, because we stopped when you had to choose between your mother and father. You chose your mother and you flew off to the United States in the dead of night, practically, because you were afraid that you, you, your mother was being pursued by your father for custody of, of, mm-hmm. of, of you and your brother. Um, and then you went to the States and you forged a new life there with your mother and Eddie, who turned out to be wonderful, wonderful man, and you'd call him dad. Um, But your father was found dead four years after you left Ireland, lying in your bed. Mm. In in our home, yeah. In your home, in your old family home. Now, do you think that was responsible for the longers, or was it the original uh, time when you had to choose? Well, they're related, right? Because I think, I think, if I understand it, and 
you know, again, on all of these matters, it's a swirl probably of factors. But I think having left, having made the choice, because, again, the, the scene was one in which I was with my dad. We'd moved to America already, but I was with my dad back for holiday, and he had said he was going to keep us, which was in a way what every child would wish to hear is that, you know, that your, your dad would be willing to break the law, ignore the courts because you're so worth it. And and so he, you know, wants to to keep us, tells my mother that. My mother can't afford another custody battle having gone all the way to the Supreme Court to get custody in the first place. Hi, you know, says, come to me. I want to, I don't know what to do. Is two people I love most in the world. Do I go to my father? Do I go to my mother? But my mother... You know, my father not as, you know, not expressing the kind of conviction. I think on one level, right, when you're drinking that much and you do love your children, there's a reason that my mother was more forceful in that moment in, in pulling me. I think my father did care above all about us. But I went to my mother. That I carried that moment of that agency, that sort of pseudo-agency that, that I had uh, as a nine-year-old to America there was no cost at that point other than that I wasn't seeing my dad. I was missing my dad, but my dad wasn't coming, so it seemed like it was his choice. So then there's the question of why isn't he coming? So I carried that. And then when I suddenly my mother comes into my room at age 14 and tells me that my father has died, to me is the most sudden, most crazy. I mean, she might as well have said, you know, I'm going, I'm going to be traveling to the moon tomorrow. I mean, it was so removed from my life experience that that somebody could just die at 47, you know, and I hadn't known he was sick and I knew he drank, but everybody in Ireland drank, it seemed <laughs> to me in my, at least in my understanding of the, the, of, of, you know, the world around me as a child. Um, and so everything was connected to everything else, I think, in my self-understanding. I mean, the fact that I could have, in my own kind of ludicrous understanding of that moment that I, maybe I could have stayed. Had I stayed, would would I have, would my presence and that of my younger brother, would we have been enough to cause my dad to dial back on the drink? Had I stayed and he didn't dial back on the drink, would I have known that he was deteriorating to the extent that he, by the end, he was all alone? I mean, he, he couldn't pay his debts at the pubs. Uh, he'd had a girlfriend who with whom I'm very close still, um, Susan duty who who had been wonderful to him but even she at a certain point had to walk away for her own sake because it had gotten so bad but it, had we been there you know could we have prevented this the, the the worst thing imaginable from from happening and so i think you take from that any kid can take any one of a number of things but for me it was a sense of you know stand by the people you know you love and who love you and and a sense of guilt definitely um that i hadn't been there um, and, uh, and again, more agency than any grown up, never mind any child would ever have over alcoholism, but you can't tell a child it's a disease, you know, it's bigger than any of us. It's addiction, you know, it requires a whole network, um, but of Samantha, support. I suppose one of the lines that absolutely jumped out of the book at me was you and Cass went back to heart to <laughs> And there was a woman behind the bar. Ma Mulligan. Ma Mulligan. And you said, lots of men drank, drank like my father, but why was he the one to die? And what did she say? Because you left. Well, now, was that helpful? That would be the <laughs> Webster's definition of unhelpful. Uh, it also didn't help that it came, you neglected to mention that it came the day after I'd been forced to resign from the Obama well, you campaign. When Hillary Clinton a monster. So it was almost... And and the best was Cass, who I just started dating, and you know he'd have he'd have no he'd have led a a more traditional life, you know, and 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 to to be with me, he had come over thinking we were going to have a romantic weekend. He was going to meet my Irish family. He actually came over flying from the states with a ring in his pocket to propose. I only learned that later, thank God. But when he arrived, he gets an email from me saying. I've done the most terrible thing. I called Hillary Clinton a monster. I'm going to have to resign the campaign. You know, I've really effed up this time. And initially he was he was, said, no, no, you'll be fine. It'll just blow over. And then he came back. He went from Dublin Airport to our hotel room and he got on his computer and it was like, it was just exploded all around the world. 
And and of course, I'm just looking to him, my knight in shining armor. Is it? It is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And he's like, mm, mm, um, it might eventually be okay. <laughs> but anyway, so it's in that context. Then later that day, Obama calls and and says, we have to put you in the penalty box. I say to him, they call that the sin bin here. I'm going to be. And he said, yep, you're going to be in the sin bin. You're going to have to resign. But he's very present emotionally in a in a way that did blunt some of the pain of it. But anyway, that was on, I guess, the Friday, and then it was the Saturday that we went to a sporting match at Croke Park. I love sports of all kinds, and I, you know, I was practically catatonic. I could barely, you know, I hadn't eaten, I hadn't slept. I mean, I'd just become this public disgrace because of my stupidity, and we wander away from Croke Park, and, I, and Cass doesn't know where he's going, and we're just wandering. I mean, maybe it was subliminal, right? And then I look up, and there's Hardigan's. And I said, Cass, actually, this is the place I've told you about that I spent so much of my youth. I mean, it sounds like out of a movie. And 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 he said, well, <laughs> you know, cheerfully, um, let's go in. Like, I, you know, I, I love this woman. I've just I want to know everything about her. Like, what does this what does this pub look like? You know, and we go in and we sit at the bar. And so I say exactly, you know, like uh, so many people drank here. Like, why was my dad the one to die? And she answers in the way that she did. Because you left and Cass, you know, just this cherub beside me, he just reaches into his pocket and he just takes out this stash of euro and they're all crumpled up and he just throws them on the bar and he kind of takes me and whisks me out into the crisp Dublin air and just said, that might not have been our best idea. Um, Well, who? Could have thought that was going to happen. Yeah, no, no. And I think some other part of the part of the the, the the interest in that story is that on the face of it, you are a child of privilege. Your father was a dentist. Your mother is became an eminent right. medic, a specialist in huge kidneys. Privilege. Yeah, uh, huge privilege. You ended up going to Yale, Harvard. You seemed to be able to do exactly what you liked when you liked without very with very little money to support you. If I may say so, I haven't been a freelance journalist myself, and. Um, on the face of it, there was tremendous privilege. When you look back, is that how it feels? I guess, yeah. I mean, that, you know, I, I, in, in writing about what happened, I have included warts and all and, the, and these very, these very um, defining, this defining tragedy. I mean, it's just really one defining tragedy in my life. And it, and it, it had a profound effect on me and very nearly, you know, could have, if I hadn't really probed it more deeply than I was prepared, initially prepared to do, I may not have the greatest privilege of my life, which is to have two children of my own and have this great husband. And so I'm really glad I, I dug into it. And I'm, I'm glad I've laid it bare on the page, even, even, um, if it was, if that in itself, you know, was hard to do, not just because it's hard to go back into those painful chapters, but also it's really hard for the people who are involved, who love my father, who are still mm-hmm. alive and, and who, who were, um, you know, again, themselves trying to help him, trying to save him, um, as I wished I had done later. And, and so I, I lay all of that out. I hope that it offers some solace to people who've gone through, you know, similar ordeals. Nobody else's life is exactly like anybody others, but there's there are dimensions of this that a lot of people have, have mm-hmm. gone through, whether addiction or abandonment or divorce or the sort of mental health aftermath uh, of, of, of anything, really. Um, and so that's all out there. But, but my greatest sense, and, and this was something I developed not long after my dad died, is gratitude. And, and I don't know exactly why that's the shift, <laughs> the pivot I made when I was young. But, you know, even when I began to go to therapy and people would say, aren't you mad at your mother for taking you away from your father? And I'm like, no, I'm just so glad she's alive and she's amazing. And I'm so grateful. And I, and, and, you know, as you were saying earlier, sort of not judging, but, but, and especially now that I've become a parent, understanding the profound dilemma she was facing, right, of wanting her kids to be with their father. Of course she wanted that. Um, but also not wanting the her kids to be raised in Hardigan's pub part of the time. Um, and so so I think I, you know, I have a friend now, John Prendergast, who I mentioned earlier, who I went to Darfur with, my, my, my closest friend, the godfather of my son, Declan. And every night 
before we go to bed, since Trump came on the scene and I left the White House, we email each other the three things for which we are grateful uh, that have night. happened during the day, every night. I mean, some, I mean, just human nature kicks in occasionally, like, you know, if, you, if like last night I was out too late. And so I didn't, I was out with Cullum Tobin and, you know, you can't, you can't ever go to bed early if you're, if you have the chance to, to hang out with Cullum. And so by the time I got home and I'm jet, back to the hotel, I, I was jet lagged and I was like, oh, my, my effing gratitude. <laughs> you know, I have to do <laughs> run out. I had to, no, I had so much to be grateful for, but oh. it was more like the task of it, the burnout. I have to do my damn gratitude, you know? And so sometimes that happens. So today so I'll do two sets of gratitude. Night, no, 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 no. And no, a glass last, of wine. No, no, no. That, no. That, 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 at three in the morning was, was, that was my limit. So I said, I'll do two, I'll do six gratitudes tomorrow, but but the gratitudes I do today are for today and for yesterday. You'll be part of my gratitude today, I must say. Uh, but no, it, 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 it's like, do you choose to see? There's some, you know, there are things that you can dwell on. I could think about Trump and what he's doing to people 24-7. Or I can think about some small act of kindness that came my way that I wasn't expecting. Or, you know, I can think about something that... Declan said, you know, that only a 10-year-old can say uh, about the state of the world. And, and like that's worth at the end of the day reflecting on in order to render that more salient than, than the, the, the darkness. And, and so I think that that spirit of gratitude means that to your question finally, uh, that I basically feel blessed and, and that even the, the darker moments – you know, if you if you're lucky enough to have a support network, if you're lucky enough, if I was lucky enough to have my mother continuing to be by my side and supporting pretty much everything I did, then maybe one of the things that comes out of those difficult periods is resilience, is empathy mm. for other people who who have it a lot worse than I do. So I, I feel still privileged. I also, also words. think it's important for the in, in the in the interest of balance here to say that your book actually to me. I asked you that question about privilege, but on the other hand, it is notable that almost everything you achieved, you had to fight like a terrier for, including writing books almost by accident and winning the Pulitzer Prize almost by accident and not being able to get a publisher when you'd written that book and having to just keep going, keep going. And that's for my mother. I mean, no question. Again, uh, like, again, the same, imagine having as your role model the person that took a custody battle to the Supreme mm. Court or who pursued a medical career, having already been told that she couldn't and gone and, in her case, gone and gotten a PhD in biochemistry. But there she is with an academic degree saying, all I want to do is care for patients. And then already having had a child going back to medical school in that era. So again, I've been, I feel grateful that that that, that was the model that I had in front of me. Well, your fighting spirit is extraordinary. And I think, you know, to imagine that that just came out of your, your academic privilege or the fact that your mother was wonderful would be to mistake you, I think, because you fought through many, many hurdles. And I think it's only fair to say that. And that's one of the, one of the many reasons the book is so well worth reading. But Samantha, tell me this. Did you start out being a feminist? Or has life turned you into one? I or what life, would you say to your daughter now? I think... Again, back to the point I was just making about perspective, and I, I think I felt next to what I had saw that my mother had to go through, that once we came to America, not that she didn't still deal with gender in the workplace and not that I didn't still hear about it, but that I had it easy. Um, and I think um, it wasn't that I wasn't a feminist, it's just that I wasn't self-identifying um, you know, in that way. But then when you work in male-dominated institutions that can bring out your inner vocal feminist, uh, as we've talked about. I think also to have the, the privilege of working, you know, on behalf of U.S. foreign policy and to see just how women are treated all over the world, how girls are not educated who have such promise and potential. And so even just even irrespective of the odds that I may or may not have had to overcome or how easy or not easy my path was, you know, it's it's a responsibility to other women and girls uh, to, I think, wear one's feminism proudly and to, and to remember, again, I have a, a, a slogan in the book that came to me really uh, uh, late in my time in government, which is not lean in, which I also, yeah. of course, believe in, but lean on. 
And part of leaning on is not just the networks and the sisterhood that, that one can rely on in male-dominated workplaces or in one's personal life, not just the childcare that any working parent is desperately dependent on um, in order to be able to stumble through trying to be the best parent and the best professional that one can be. Um, but it's also remembering that others are, are kind of counting on you to use whatever privilege you have to look out for them. And so leaning on cuts both ways. Um, being there for others to lean on, even if you never even meet the people uh, whose rights you're trying to promote. Samantha, I think you're turning 50 soon, are you? Are you in, a, in a year. Thanks in, very much. In a year? Yeah, give, me, give me a year. Oh, that's a long time away. Thank you. I'm that's sorry for bringing it up, actually. <laughs> but is there anything you've promised yourself for when you turn 50? I am going... With my girlfriends who are these war correspondents, uh, they don't know this yet, but these war correspondents um, that I met in my early 20s who gravitated to Bosnia out of the same sense of purpose uh, that I did, many of whom are working now at the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, you know, on civil rights and Trump and others are working at Human Rights Watch and we've all gone off, very few are journalists still, just um, a couple are, but um, we, this half dozen women and I, Again, once they're informed and 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 I've I've gotten them to sign up, but are going to go to the west of Ireland and we're going to have a great uh, long weekend or maybe even a week on the Ring of Kerry in Waterville near near where I got married. Um, I'm just trying to get a place in Balanskelligs now. I'm dealing with the planning people and so forth, but I really want my my kids to have a foothold here. Uh, my daughter said to me the other day, Mommy, someone at school said I'm not actually from Ireland. <laughs> and I said, Rian, well, technically they have a point, but but we're going to change that. Um, so I'm, She is I'm, the most Irish-looking kid I've ever seen I in know, my life. I know, she's like an Aer Lingus yes. poster <laughs> child. I know. Um, poor Cass. He's no impact on the gene pool whatsoever. None. Zero. But um, either of the children. But for my friends to experience Ireland with me at age fifty after everything, and then for my kids to have a place to come back to every summer, um, it's going to be very special to me in the years ahead. Samantha Power, it's been a great honour to have you in the studio. Thank you so my much. My honour, totally. Thank you. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Samantha Power and her book is called The Education of an Idealist and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Somehow she manages to make the subject of foreign policy unbelievably seductive and interesting. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time with more fascinating guests. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.